At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. I'm Liv. And today on the podcast, we have a very special guest who's joining us for our episode on Christia Freeland. So today we have Craig Baird, full-time podcast host and creator uh, based out of Edmonton. And he has three podcasts, three podcast people. Uh, The first one is uh, Canadian History X. Uh, and his two new ones, Pucks and Cups, and From John to Justin. And so I have to ask you, before we start, do you think that you're going to have to change the name of your podcast from John to Christia? <laughs> you know what? I hope one day I have to, because I think, as, as we'll probably discuss, she, she would be a pretty great prime minister. So that, that, that might be like the, uh, the, the, the add-on special in a couple of years. <laughs> So Christa Freeland is Canada's Deputy Prime Minister and current Minister of Finance, um, but she's had quite a career in several portfolios uh, in the federal cabinet. We'll start at the very beginning where we always start. We love starting at the beginning, don't we? So Christia Freeland uh, is born in Peace River, Alberta, and uh, Craig is in Alberta. So we'll have lots of insight on what it's like to grow up in Alberta on a farm uh, outside of Edmonton. Maybe that wasn't your experience on a farm. but uh... It actually was completely my experience. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so um, Christy is, yeah. yeah, tell us, tell us about growing up on a farm in Alberta. Uh, well, it's as what you would expect. It's sometimes cold, sometimes hot and it's, it's Alberta. So it's, it's very different from the rest of the country sometimes, but uh, it was fine. You know, it was a regular good childhood, you know, growing up on the farm and dealing with uh, all those farm things, mostly horses, but, um, but in speaking about peace, uh, peace river, I actually used to live up there and it's actually a really nice area. Uh, Hmm. It's ways up there. Like it's, it's cold and the winters are long, but it's, it's actually pretty nice. The peace river, the actual river is a really nice river. They, I used to go up there and uh, you can walk along and find fossils and things like that. And I'm curious because you say that growing up in Alberta and being in Alberta is a different experience than the rest of the country. And of course that becomes uh, the reason why she holds certain positions in cabinet. And I'm just like curious if you can uh, kind of let us know how it's different. Uh, well, I guess the big difference is in my entire life, uh, I haven't lived my entire life in Alberta, but in my entire life, there's only been four years where there wasn't a conservative premier in Alberta. And that was when Rachel, Not- Rachel Notley was uh, uh, premier and hopefully uh, is again after Mr. Kenny. 
uh, but that's that's a whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> but we're a very conservative province. Uh, it's kind of weird we're right next to British Columbia because we are night and day, and I've lived in both, and it's completely different, the two. Uh, we're a lot more like Saskatchewan, and I think it's kind of interesting that such a prominent person in the Liberal cabinet comes from uh, from Alberta, because like look in the last election it was all conservative it's all we ever vote for uh it was a surprise when the ndp actually won uh just because it's been so long uh under conservatives since 1971 72 i think uh by that point it's really interesting and we do we we do stop here deliberately because as liv says this will be important for for where she ends up in cabinet but what you're talking about you know how that it's it's really nice and the Peace River is really beautiful and this is certainly how Christy Freeland describes her her childhood. She describes a very idyllic upbringing. She describes it as magical. <laughs> um, interestingly, she was on a farm, but both her parents were lawyers, which we have to highlight by law. Um, <laughs> I'm really interested in her mother, though, Liv, as I'm sure you're not not shocked. Not at all. This is this is on brand for Kate. This is so on brand for Kate. So her mother was a lawyer and an activist. So her parents, um, her parents divorced at age nine. Her mother has quite an interesting life. She starts a feminist bookstore. She lives on, and I think in part founds a socialist co-op where she lives. Um, her parents are her parents are both of Ukrainian descent. She speaks Ukraine at home, something that she's passed on to her family now. She speaks only speaks Ukrainian to her children, is my understanding, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like politics were also in her childhood, in, which is interesting because she entered, I mean, fairly late in life to begin. Um, but both of her parents, her father ran for the provincial liberals and her mother ran for the NDP. Both were unsuccessful. Um, but but clearly thinking about, clearly politics was not so foreign to her as a, as a way of life. Um, so yeah, I, she went to a, a Strathcona high school, a really old one actually. And old Strathcona is right next to the university. And so it tends to be the place in Alberta where there's a lot of newer ideas. There's more young people who live there. Um, so that probably influenced her quite a bit being around that. It's, it's a very unique place in Edmonton. It's, it's very old. It's older than Edmonton, I think, because uh, it used to be two different cities. Uh, and when we look at uh, like provincial elections, NDP is always usually elected there. Uh, in federal elections, when NDP would win in Alberta, it was usually within that riding of Strathcona. So that might have kind of played a, a role in her eventual moving towards something like liberals rather than uh, being in the conservative party that's so dominant here. And just to, uh, you know, highlight her Ukrainian heritage growing up was a very important part of, you know, the language, obviously, and the culture. And I think the ideals of um, kind of coming out of that time did kind of found uh, or maybe found is the wrong word, but influence, I think, her career in a lot of ways and, and how she ended up developing um, as a journalist, as an author, um, and goes on to, I think, form a lot of her foreign, foreign policy ideals as well. As you see, you know, she, she's a really strong advocate for, for Ukraine. So I think it's interesting to highlight 
uh, you know, how, how the Ukrainian culture in her, in her life did, did really found her. And, you know, as someone who is also Ukrainian, I, uh, I don't necessarily have the same, um, uh, cultural attachment. So, so I think it's, you know, it's interesting. It's definitely, it's definitely important for how she sees herself, because as we know, she was born Christina and she took Christia, which is, um, I think, is it the Ukrainian form of Christina? Her name. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my understanding as well. So she studies at Harvard. She studies Russian history and literature. Probably her most important experience at Harvard was actually her exchange. Honestly, same. You know, I, I think everyone's <laughs> exchange experience is the, the best experience of university. Agreed. Um, so when she was 21, she was an exchange student in Kiev, which in the past couple of years we all learned is pronounced Kiev. Where there she worked as a fixer for the New York Times reporter uh, for a New York Times reporter called Bill Keller, and she's and also translator. a translator. Yeah. Um, and there she worked. She helped Bill Keller uncover a story about um, mass murder of thousands of Ukrainians under Stalin, which the Soviets had been denying for decades and conveniently claimed that it was the Nazis who were responsible for these murders. Um, But people in the area uh, knew that this clearly predated the Nazis. And um, she was, you know, a a key part of blowing this story wide open and uncovering the truth that it was actually Stalin's secret police who orchestrated this mass murder. And she also articulates this as an important moment in her career. And she says this experience is what inspired her to become a journalist. So after her Harvard undergrad, she does a quick stint at Oxford and as a Rhodes Scholar, whatever. Yeah, all my all my notes are like, like I said, it's, uh, it's, you know, this former prime minister did this. And because we're all kind of looking towards her becoming prime minister kind of fits. But uh, we have had a prime minister who was a Rhodes Scholar, and it was John Turner. And he was prime minister for a very brief time in 1984 between uh, Trudeau and Mulroney. But uh, he was actually... He was actually an interesting person. Uh, he almost married Princess Margaret. He was an Olympic yes. uh, athlete. But uh, anyway, so we have had a Rhodes Scholar uh, Prime Minister at least once and, and maybe twice, uh, you know, looking down the road. So, of course, she goes on to become a journalist uh, working for the Financial Times um, at the Moscow as the Moscow bureau chief. Yeah, she starts as the Eastern European correspondent, and then she she's eventually promoted, and she heads the Moscow bureau. Um, and she continues to en- enjoy a, a very successful career. She becomes deputy editor of the Global Mail at 29 years old. Um, she returns to the Financial Times, which is where she met her husband. She ends up at Thompson Thompson Router. And where she's the global editor at large. Um, when I was 29, I was the editor of a very small newspaper in, I think, southern Alberta. Maybe Fairview, actually, I'm near Peace River. I was nowhere near the Globe and Mail. So that is like <laughs> incredibly impressive, the fact that she was uh, like an assistant editor. So she publishes two books. First is called The Sale of the Century, Inside the Story of the Second Russian Revolution in 2000. And in 2012, the best-selling <laughs> plutocrats the rise of the new global super rich and the fall of everyone else i don't have too much on the the first book i don't know if anybody else does the i think the probably the, the more important piece of writing for her the rest of her career her ideology her ted talk um is plutocrats which is about um how globalization and technology are fueling the growing uh 
Rise, I have a quote from the book that I think kind of encapsulates what it's about. Rising income inequality and a hollowed out middle class are the dominant social and political challenges facing our generation. Um, of course, I didn't read her book for this because who has the time? But I did watch the <laughs> TED Talk, <laughs> which is about it. I thought um, the TED Talk was really good, actually. I was, good. I was I was really impressed with her um, as a speaker and um, the concept of the book, too. I was I was very impressed by it. it's very um, academic, which is is not something you necessarily I mean, of course, we know great politicians who also are very academic, but I think we're kind of in an era where politicians aren't that. Uh, so I found it quite refreshing um, to to just listen to her speak about something that she's incredibly competent on and that's quite um uh intellectually rigorous i think i think i know what you're getting at which is that we often kind of think of put politicians in the camp of um pragmatists or um like cerebral ideological philosophical type leaders Mm -hmm. and i think that what's interesting about her is i do really see her as both is yeah. that she's very, very cerebral, but she is, um, <laughs> you know, Hillary Clinton would say she was a progressive who gets things done, but she, <laughs> which I think is, it, she is both pragmatic and uh, ideological at the same time. I don't think that is quite as common. Um, I think politicians want to be that way, but I don't really think many of them are skilled at being both. And I do think that mm-hmm. she is. And that's how she's described people who've worked with her as minister on on every portfolio. She's a details person. She's a details person, but she also has extraordinary message discipline. And she like is a super shrewd negotiator at the same time, but she also really does get into the weeds. Like a lot of ministers don't. Okay. So what's interesting about the book is that obviously like Katie said, I didn't read it, but um, I've listened to lots of stuff on it. So I feel like I have a pretty good understanding. And as I was listening to the, like the various, um, rhetoric about the book it's it really struck me this concept of um you know what are what's happening to the middle class you know we're having this hollowing out of the middle class the middle class is suffering and I was like hmm this reminds me a lot of Justin Trudeau's first campaign slogan the middle class the middle class and middle sure class enough, and those struggling to join it how many times have you heard that yeah literally <laughs> and so I was like okay this is I've I've feeling like a very natural, um, you know, connection between the two of them. And sure enough, the, the more I dug into it, it seems that this book may have actually formed the basis of his campaign um, and that her ideals and ideology kind of became the backbone of his campaign um, in a way that I had no idea about, you know, because she's, of course, um, the campaign is of course promising you know like uh tax cuts for the middle class higher tax on the the super rich um and greater support and of course you know we can debate how that's happened over the years um but that was of course the the campaign promise that's what you know got justin trudeau elected and i think that we need to give christia freeland a little bit more uh credit than 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 we knew about and just as a teaser that seems it was exactly completely deliberate by justin trudeau and that's why he literally chased her to run uh to run for the liberals in university rosedale (laughs) but i think this is a good time to talk about um the transition from journalist to politician 
Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look back at the history of, there's been you know quite a few who have gone on to become from journalism to politicians. Uh, probably the one right now is uh, other than uh, Freeland is uh, Seamus O'Regan, who uh, used to I think he hosted Canada AM, uh, and you know obviously was a journalist before that as well. Um, and you don't really hear too much about him, but I think in Ottawa there's some issues with a journalist because many politicians don't always like journalists because they, you know, expose things that don't want to be exposed. And then you look at people like uh, Pamela Wallen and uh, Mike Duffy, who were senators who uh, went into, were in a huge scandal because of how much they were spending in their, in their offices. So that kind of gave it a bad name. Cause I think in many ways, people look at journalists as you should know better because you literally investigate these things. And then when you're in power, you do those things. Uh, uh, but sometimes journalists are very good politicians. Uh, I used to live in High River. I used to be the editor of the newspaper there. And Joe Clark's father created that newspaper. And Joe Clark used to work at that newspaper. And he went on to become, you know, a very brief prime minister. But his political career is, is quite good. Uh, yeah, he, used to, he was a very good prime minister. Or not prime minister, but at least a politician uh, over the course of his career. And he used to be a journalist. But on the journalist side of things, I think there's distrust of journalists who become politicians because it's like you've switched teams. So you would find that a lot with anybody who went into communications for, uh, for a politician as well. You went from reporting on things to trying to spin the news in your own way. So I think in some ways, a, a journalist who becomes a politician can't win because politicians don't like them and journalists don't like them. So they're kind of in this, this weird middle ground of nobody quite trusts them, maybe at the beginning, but then as time goes on, uh, maybe you forget that they used to be a journalist. I think that's what will happen with uh, Freeland as well. As time goes on, we'll completely forget that she was ever a journalist and just a long time politician uh, and, you know, eventual maybe prime minister. I do want to, I think, I think you're right. I think we will forget about it. But if we don't, I think the reason will be a little bit of the hypocrisy when she was still a journalist. And I, I say that because, of course, being at Harvard, being a Rhodes Scholar, she rubbed shoulders with some very rich and powerful people. And since writing plutocrats, like she spent a lot of time with plutocrats, like she's friends with a lot of plutocrats. Like one of her closest friends in life is Sheryl Sandberg, who's the CFO of Facebook and nothing if not a technocrat. Um, she's, I think the person who hosted um, <laughs> the launch party for her book is uh, like a, a legendary New York City litigator. Like she's somebody who, um, despite talking about the super rich, has spent a lot of time with them and is certainly friends with them. And this is, you know, before her time um, as a politician where, you know, as foreign minister, you de facto spent a lot of time with rich people. But even as a journalist, I suppose being in, you know, I suppose being in upper management at Thomson Routers, you meet powerful people there too. But, but she has a lot of, rich rich friends that she spends time with and i think um if if there's critique of her and i as i said to you before we started recording which is hard to find um most of the critique of her are you know extensions of critiques of of, of prime minister trudeau um it's that she despite criticizing the super rich spends a lot of time um being chummy with them or looking to chummy with them 
Yeah, well, we hear um, a lot of the gatekeeping too of how you become associated with the super rich um, and those plutocrats as she discusses is acceptance into the elite schools is education. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the fact that she went to um, Harvard and Oxford automatically puts her in that group and exposes her to those people. And so it, 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 I did struggle with that. I thought that that was kind of interesting because of course, you know, she's from a farm in Alberta and that's who she is. Um, but she's also had this great rise to probably almost being, uh, I mean, she's obviously not in the super rich and she has this like, um, this thing about her that you see, like she's, you know, she's not part of the elite and you see that sometimes. And I'm, and I, I kind of think like, but, but she is like, she is part of the super elite, despite the fact that she grew up in a farm. I don't know. Like I, both things can be true. What's fascinating about that Lib too, that you, you highlighted her education is that that's, that's, that's part of her theory and plutocrats yeah. is the way that technocrats ensure, um, that, that they're creating that they're still even though they're new money they're creating dynasties because their kids go to the most expensive and best schools the way that they're entrenching their families in the highest uh, most prestigious universities um it is a way that they're con- they're going to continue to be dominant and to gatekeep exactly so it's it is kind of funny because that's exactly part of her thesis Okay, I have a hard so this there's a there's a story it's been written about quite a bit um, by lots of Canadian outlets that, you know, oh, Justin Trudeau just showed about her book signing and it was like, he wanted to be there and that it wasn't. I'm not trying to start a conspiracy theory, but it's her father just said, oh, you should see if Justin Trudeau would come to your uh to your launch party. It's hard to know how like truly organic it really was. but supposedly her, Chrissy Freeland's father, um, Donald, encouraged her to uh, invite Justin Trudeau to her launch party, which she did. And he showed up in Manhattan at the party with uh, Katie Telford and Jerry Butts, two of his closest advisors. They spoke, they talked about the book, and she says she thought nothing of it. Why would you? It's only Justin Trudeau. <laughs> So he invites her to breakfast in Ottawa where she asked, where he asked her if she'd be interested in running to replace Bob Ray, who was a member for Toronto Center mm-hmm. uh, and, and told Justin Trudeau in 2013 he had planned on resi- at resigning. Um, and those who know her know she's, she's University of Rosedale, but that's because the, uh, the writings got redrawn after that. But, but Bob Ray resigning opened up an opportunity for her. But she said no. <laughs> <laughs> but Justin Trudeau <laughs> was not giving up. He calls her um, like fairly unannounced, which is unusual, right? Uh, at her house in New York City. She says no again because she didn't want to compromise her family. And she always says this is something that she really respected about him, that he really understood and that uh, it's kind of used as proof that he really is the family man he claims to be, um, which, you know, you can decide for yourselves whether you believe it. But but she was she, she was moved that that he really took to heart her concerns about her family. Um, and when he was running for the leadership, too, he said he wasn't sure he was going to do it because of his family. But um, so her husband was who was a journalist as well, had ret- just returned from Afghanistan where he'd been for for uh, I think I think a couple of years. Um, 
and their family was kind of finally getting settled and that she says that's why she said no he says he convinced her by emphasizing the public service aspect and and that was what she was interested in and that's what ended up um swaying her to take the job or you know to uh to run and i have to say if my theory that i previously discussed about her book kind of being the campaign bible is true i don't buy for a second that it was uh not the most staged encounter that you've ever heard of from Justin Trudeau's camp uh, at her book signing. That's my, I, I know I'm a conspiracy theorist, but, um, but that's where I stand on that. Well, that's what, exactly what I said. Like you can, you can decide for yourself whether you think it was truly serendipitous or whether you think he found the Bible and he went to pursue the prophet. So her first by-election in 2013, she squared off against, interestingly, another journalist uh, Linda McKaig, uh, who is the NDP candidate, who has also spent a lot of time talking about income inequality. Um, of course, she she wins. Just uh, in terms of uh, Freeland, we we've seen a lot of times in her in her life that she's the first woman to do something in politics. Uh, in the entire history of Toronto Centre, going back all the way to Canada's second election, she's actually the first woman to ever be elected in uh, Toronto Centre. It's been men the entire time going back almost 150 years okay so she gets elected and um in 2014 there was a little bit of controversy as um she was of course you know parliamentary heckling is customary um but i read a really interesting article um about how females particularly are um seem to be heckled in a slightly different way or with greater force. Um, and this article cited an, an example of uh, Chris, or case study of Christia Freeland. And she was quite new at the time. And uh, she was, you know, struggling during question period to even get her thought out, um, despite a couple of attempts. And shortly thereafter, a journalist for the Vancouver Observer uh, tweeted out to Krista Freeland, and this is, I'm quoting here, don't want to be misconstrued as these being my words, um, put your big girl voice on. And then it continues to say the honorable members water glasses are shattering. And of course, this is a reference to her, uh, like, you know, her voice is is rather high pitched. Um, not that that's a issue, but uh, this journalist took issue with it. Of course, there's, you know, this is like so obviously sexist. It's like, do we even need to deconstruct why? Um, and, but to, to Canadian Twitter's credit, uh, you know, this, this uh, tweet was immediately, um, was immediately discredited and people were tweeting at him, you know, calling it sexist right away. And so within, I think, 30 minutes of his tweet, uh, he, he apologized. So, you know, there was some um, immediate action and, you know, people were calling it into question. It wasn't building a rhetoric against her or anything like that. But I think it's interesting that, and it highlights a lot of this, this stereotype typically, um, or I should say the sexism that uh, women face in politics. Right off the bat, she gets a, a pretty, a fairly high profile portfolio as a minister of international trade. She certainly excels in, and she's also the, uh, she's also the head of the cabinet committee on Canada, U S relations uh, and Canada, U S relations will be really important um, for the rest of her 
career in in parliament so uh freeland is obvious uh, becomes involved with uh negotiations for the comprehensive economic and trade agreement known as CETA uh between canada and the european union and you and- would think it's the canada europe trade agreement but it <laughs> why wouldn't it be that that makes so much more sense and people say point. that because it's c-e-t-a that's what it should be <laughs> go ahead start a petition <laughs> Um, And I think what's interesting is that this is the first time um, that we really see uh, Christopher Freeland as the negotiator on the main stage and, and where she kind of garners a a reputation for being a, you know, a tough negotiator, but, but an effective one. And I do think that this is kind of the prequel to the NAFTA um, uh, negotiations. And I I think what lands her NAFTA, um, in my opinion, I don't know, I guess that's speculation, but I think it's, it makes sense that she's, you know, she's proven herself as a good negotiator that she ends up arguing the, or negotiating the new NAFTA. As a minister of international trade, it's, it's a pretty new portfolio in terms of like Canadian politics only since about the late 1970s, but she's the second woman to hold that position. And the first in or at least when she was uh, chosen for it, she was the first in 30 years. So there is a large gap between uh, the women who have held that position, but no former prime ministers yet, at least. <laughs> That's interesting. I think this is probably a good time to speak about NAFTA. Mm-hmm. Let's so I think what people don't realize because she had the trade portfolio that NAFTA was, was largely done while she was foreign minister, which is unusual. That she would have this this um, that big part of her mandate would still be Canada U.S. Uh, trade. Well, it was also a long negotiation. It was a long period of time that this was happening for. So, yeah, I think that it's just interesting in that sense too. This negotiation went on for 15 months. Um, she is certainly credited with the deal that came out of it. Obviously, not everybody's happy with the deal. We won't want to get into the details of the deal because it's very complicated, but. Um, but she gets a lot of credit for how she negotiated this. Um, she also certainly pissed off the Americans a few times, which I think a lot of Canadians liked. Um, <laughs> I know that, that Trump himself said, we don't like the representative very much. Um, but in yeah. the end, uh, she pulled out She pulled out a deal um, and, and didn't capitulate. Uh, and, and certainly, definitely kind of, and then after deal cemented her reputation for being an excellent negotiator, which she would come continue into, you know, the other area, um, the other aspects of her portfolio as foreign minister. When you were saying um, that she made some enemies in the process, it reminds me of that scene um, from The Crown where um, Margaret Thatcher says to the queen, you don't you're not successful if you don't have enemies or something like that. Um, it just like, it's, it's kind of like fun imagery for future prime minister Freeland. <laughs> uh, in regards to future prime minister Freeland, nine prime ministers have actually held that post uh, of minister of mm. foreign affairs. So uh, definitely, and some like big names like William Lyon, Mackenzie King, and, and such. So there definitely is precedence there for somebody to uh, to move on to the top job from there. But she's only the second woman, or the third. Sorry. 
So shall we talk about some of her praise? I just have like so many like raving quotes about her here that I, it feels like honestly a shame not to share. Please. Okay. So Lawrence Herman, who's a veteran Toronto trade lawyer, um, said about her work, it's exceptional, unprecedented that a Canadian foreign affair, a foreign minister would be responsible for trade negotiation with the United States. She's also very, very smart and tough and isn't prepared to be pushed by, around by American bullies, which she is up against here. So I thought that was a good one. And then um, David McNulton, uh, Canada's ambassador to the U.S., described her as an energizer bunny. I love that. I think that that's so, that's like, <laughs> to me, would be like the ultimate compliment. Um with that, and he talks about her ability to multitask and juggle um, so many things in doing everything like at its um, 110%, kind of, um, which I think I've is amazing. I've seen lots of, like a lot of people do describe her that way as a super positive, just tons of energy. I don't know if you know, but I don't believe she drives. She yeah. rides her bike everywhere and all the... Uh, pieces on her like she wiped the spread off her brow shook out her helmet hair put on her red sheath dress and she was ready to go <laughs> which i mean <clears throat> again i have to say you know with all of her very rich friends her i don't know being the member for university of rosedale it, it doesn't seem um doesn't seem like a terrible idea to be get a repu to give yourself a reputation for biking everywhere. It definitely makes her appear very humble. It, it, I'm, I'm sure it's not. Uh, I'm sure it's not, not deliberate. Yeah, <laughs> but but again, as but just to highlight again how strange it is to be foreign minister but also be negotiating um, this super complicated uh, trade deal over 15 months. Um, you know, like at the very same time she was negotiating NAFTA, she was working on um, getting safe haven to the White Helmets uh, in Syria, right? Like those just, are two jobs that are, <laughs> they're really, they're obviously trade is international, but you know, her job as foreign affairs is not like a part-time deal and negotiating NAFTA is not a part-time deal. <laughs> like it takes somebody with tons of talent and tons of energy and know-how to be able to handle both of those um, both of those tasks at the same time yeah okay. okay so moving on uh the next thing that i have is about the russian disinformation campaign against her in 2017 Take um away. yes so in 2017 there was um an article that came out highlighting uh, that Freeland's Ukrainian grandfather had been an editor for um, a Nazi uh, propaganda newspaper. Um, and so this was kind of an interesting one that the Canadian media did pick up on. Uh, Freeland dismissed it as a um, Russian disinformation campaign. And she also pointed out that she had uh, responded to these allegations over two decades before in um, in a university paper. So this, it, it didn't seem to have a huge 
life, this story, and it was quite quickly um, disrupted. I think, you know, she, in answering questions about it, does seem to be a a little uncomfortable. And of course, you know, why wouldn't you? Because it, it, you know, the article that came out, there was a lot of things that were untrue, but the the basis of the story um, that her grandfather was the editor of this paper was, of course, true. Um, And, so, you know, I think she's, she dealt with it in a, in a really good way. And, and I also, it also made me think, you know, do, do we hold people to the, what their grandparents did? Um, how much does that matter? I, I think that that's also a question that obviously was sort of answered by Canada, just moving on from the story very, fairly quickly. And I believe that she says that it's her family who put this story out there um, first like she's never that, yeah to feel it. she came for she when she learned this she put it forward and she she wanted to deal with it at the front end always and yeah. disown it and and I think she has done that yeah I think that that's right she didn't have she wasn't trying to hide anything this wasn't some big revelation that came out um and of course <laughs> it's funny to hear people talk about kind of Russian disinformation campaigns within Canada because yeah you know, you, you want to be proud of your own country, but it is kind of just like, you know what, Canada's influence in the world is certainly not as great as the U- United States. So the, the effort put into the Russians to make these campaigns successful is not as great. Are you saying you, know? you think the Russians are wasting their time on us? No, I'm not saying they're <laughs> wasting their time. I'm just saying that they're not putting that much effort into this disinformation campaign. Um, she's also she's also banned from Russia in 2014. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, it makes sense why the Russians are targeting her. Like she's she's very clearly, um, you know, anti-Russia, pro-Ukraine, and she, you know, she was really supportive of the uh, of the Canadian military going into the Ukraine um, back in what was it 2014, uh, 2015 time, and and you know, like that's a uh, that's a huge thing that Russia is like obviously not into. So it, it makes sense why they're targeting her. Um, of course, it, it didn't didn't seem to, to work. So I also read that she interviewed Putin in 2000. Oh, yeah. Maybe she pissed him off. Well, she's obviously she was very, too pushy. <laughs> right. But she also like in all of her writing, you know, she's very critical of uh, the, the Russian super rich and Russia at large, you know you could say it's like, her life's work like yeah like it's 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 obvious why she's targeted in my opinion in that sense um if, if i can jump in there mm-hmm. uh one thing that i really liked about what uh when freeland was put on that uh list was that she said it was an honor to be put on Putin's <laughs> sanction list which is just it's great because it's like I couldn't care less that I'm sanctioned. In fact, it means I'm like you said, uh, if uh, like on the crown, you know, if you have those enemies, then you're obviously doing something. So it's good yeah. that she didn't like apologize or anything like that. She just, oh well, if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it no, fits definitely. the brand too. To be like, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Next, we have the shift from foreign affairs to intergovernmental affairs and deputy prime minister. Maybe we'll start with the intergovernmental affairs of it all. So this happened shortly after the last federal election in 2019. It's largely seen as a response to, um, I don't know how to describe this, discontent Wexit? in the West. <laughs> I wasn't, gonna, I have, I put Wexit shit in my notes, but that's not what I wanted to say. 
Um, and I think yeah, the, the thought being that it would, uh, it was, it would be meaningful, hopefully meaningful to the West that Trudeau decided to put probably the highest profile member of his cabinet besides himself uh, at this job. Um, of course, she is also from Alberta. I think that was, that was part of the rationale to have her there um, to, to kind of show to Western provinces that, um, that the federal government was taking this, these, this seriously and had every intention to um, do something about it. Craig, you might have thoughts about this. <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. i um, spent all my life in the West. So uh, I, I've always found it kind of weird, like uh, the West complains about not having representation in Ottawa, but then, you know, they don't vote for anybody who could represent them. And a perfect example is Ralph Goodale, uh, who represented in Regina and had a wealth of experience. Uh, he used to be the Minister of Finance. I think he might have been Deputy Prime Minister at one point. And they elected some rookie conservative person and then complained that we don't have anybody in Ottawa representing us. And it's like, well, you just voted out a guy who had ample experience. And the whole Wexit thing, I mean, that's just, I did an episode on that on my uh, podcast and I have my opinions about that. What's it called thing. so that people can go find it if they want to um, listen? It's a history of uh, Western separation uh, because Alberta's complained about separating many times through its history. And uh, we've elected some people who have pushed for that, but it usually doesn't go anywhere. And this won't any either because I don't think people have a very good handle of uh, things like, um, uh, I forget what it's called, but we put it in place after Quebec tried to separate, which makes it very difficult for any province to separate from Canada. Almost impossible. Never mind the fact that we don't have any ports and, you know, what do you do with uh, reserves and uh, national parks? But anyways, I'm getting off because that is a huge pet peeve of mine. I can't stand it. <laughs> I think in Alberta, it might have, and it's unfortunate, but I think it might have been easier for people to accept if he had to put a man in place uh who was from alberta rather than a woman uh and i'm not saying like that's the case for a lot of people in alberta but there definitely is that uh that view by some that you know she's a a woman she's an intellectual you know she's not a down home uh farm girl or cowboy or whatever you want to uh call it from alberta she's she lives in toronto and that's you know we all hate toronto out here that kind of thing Right. Even though she did grow up on a farm. Exactly. In, <laughs> in Edmonton and Peace River and spent a good chunk of her life out here. Yeah, even though, but now she lives in Toronto. But then they'll elect uh, Andrew Shear, who, you know, was born in Ottawa and only moved out to Regina uh, in his adult life because his wife was out here. But he, you know, puts up forward that image of I wear a cowboy hat and Jason Kenney's another example. So yeah, I'm not your typical Albertan. <laughs> I, don't, I don't go for the conservative thing. <laughs> In this cabinet shuffle, she also obtained another title of deputy prime minister and uh, which left Canadians scratching their heads to remember what exactly does the deputy prime minister do? Well, you know, we think of the deputy prime minister, I think wrongly as our vice president, uh, but we don't have the same kind of rules of succession that the United States does. So if, uh, for what, say, for whatever reason, uh, Trudeau got really sick and uh, she would kind of be in charge. Uh, it's a really recent 
post uh, before we had acting prime minister. And we actually did have a woman uh, serve as acting prime minister, uh, Ellen Fairclough, back in the 1950s. And it was for one day, but it still counts. So, uh, But the acting or the deputy prime minister was created by Trudeau's father back in the 70s. And sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. Stephen Harper didn't have a deputy prime minister at all uh, for most of his uh, time in power. It's it's kind of the second person in charge. It's, but it's not. It, it's not like a vice president. It's not uh, if Trudeau six suddenly Freeland is the new prime minister uh, because of how we do our uh, parliamentary system. We'd still have to elect a leader. Chances are she would be elected. I, I would imagine that she would be the one chosen. In many ways, it's a very. It, it, like a figurehead uh, type of post. It, it has a lot of power behind the name, but there might not be a lot of power to it. I, I don't think we put a lot of weight behind it. Just the fact that we didn't even have one during Harper Harper's time uh, shows you how much weight has uh, is behind the deputy prime minister role. But it is a, a pretty, it's a nice thing to have on the resume for sure. And it probably will help definitely if she does a leadership run because people will see that as having leadership experience. And I think it's it's been understood that uh, moving her to intergovernmental affairs would certainly be a demotion from foreign affairs because foreign affairs is such a big job. It's probably the number two job. Um, part of giving her that job was to ensure it would look like a lateral move and not a demotion, which I think it certainly was. And you know, he certainly holds her in really high regard. Um, but, but that was, I think the reason for giving her that title, because again, as you said, you know, it doesn't, it was created by, uh, Pierre Trudeau. It's not set out in law. It doesn't have a specific set of functions. And as such, you know, what that, uh, job ends up being is largely determined on what the prime minister wants it to be in that moment. Um, certainly during, during this time, it's been obviously related to the pandemic. So she's been, that's been a lot of her role as deputy prime minister. Uh, in regard, in regards to the deputy prime minister to kind of shift it away from th uh, the view of a vice president. If you look at vice presidents, a lot of them go on to become presidents, but uh, and we, we don't have a lot of only 50 years to look at, but only one prime minister was actually every deputy prime minister. And that was Jean Chrétien. Uh, so it's not a case of if you're going to be the deputy prime minister, you will be the prime minister eventually, like in the case of a vice president. Uh, so, but you know, we could have two down the road, who knows, but like you said, it's a very, it's a really prominent role. Uh, but I think it was created as a way to say to the West, uh, and not to generalize, but a lot of people in the West don't know how politics work or how parliament works. And they might view it as the deputy prime minister is the second person in charge. So she's from the West. So we have somebody who's the second in charge. And based on all of the bumper stickers I see around here of uh, people who hate Trudeau, uh, they would probably be happy with Trudeau out and somebody from the West being the new prime minister. <laughs> I think um, based on my like I'm looking at Twitter and preparing for this just to see what people are saying about her. And that's um, in the last couple of days or last few days, because we're recording this on uh, January 24th and uh, the inauguration, Joe Biden's inauguration was on Wednesday. Lots of people are tweeting like, look now Canada has a, as a woman as a number two and the state has a woman as a number two. Look at, look at us both with uh, women in the number two job. So I think you're right. I do think that lots of people are, are viewing it as, um, yeah, like a vice president type role, which as we know, it just, just isn't really the case. 
So most Canadians will know that Mr. Trudeau was embroiled in another scandal in the summer of 2020, where his relationships with, um, and his family's relationship with the Wee Charity came to light, as well as his finance minister, Bill Morneau, um, and his and his family's relationships with the, with the Wee Charity <laughs> came to light. Um, Morneau subsequently resigned, and Canada got its first female finance minister in Christy Freeland. So Freeland was, um, got the job as finance minister, which she is, as we're recording this, is, is the position she currently holds uh, while retaining deputy prime minister um, and while attaining the unofficial job title of minister of everything. Um, <laughs> so, uh, of course, there was a bit of a backlash to her appointment as finance minister, which I know we all have lots of thoughts about. We sure do. <laughs> okay well where to begin really because I have so many <laughs> things I want to talk about with this um to be honest so let's I think let's first start with a game shall we um because I think that a, the, one of the most common narratives that we heard after her appointment was that she didn't have uh the relative experience to be um uh, finance minister. So I thought it would be fun to take a look at who had been a finance minister before and um, and play a game of what job did they have or what qualifications did they have before? Okay. Now I'm going to butcher his name as, as a good Ukrainian that I am. I have no idea how to say it. Um, Don Mazankowski. That's right. Any guesses? Oh, yes, yes. Um, any, do we know what he was before he became the finance minister? Uh, Personal during, injury uh, lawyer. Nope, nope. That, uh, he, he, he owned a car dealership. He owned a car dealership. Interesting. So interesting. Then we have um, Jim Flaherty. Katie, what was he before? Personal injury lawyer. He sure was. And now I, I happen to know a couple of personal injury lawyers. Um, <laughs> All of which who would be very skilled as, um, you know, I don't want to slate anybody or slight anybody, but, you know, they would, of course, be very skilled as a finance minister. But uh, let me tell you, being a personal injury lawyer does not uniquely qualify you for being a finance <laughs> minister. Okay. Anyways, so that's probably enough of that game. All to say uh, is that, you know, it's not like we have a deep, rich history where we have a thorough vetting process where we only allow um, Bay Street elites who, you know, have a particular set of um, qualifications or certain things on their resume that we absolutely need to check off uh, before they become finance minister. And of course, we are holding her to a, a standard that is is completely unfair uh, based on the past record of who has held this position. <laughs> right. So just uh, for those who don't know, Bill Morneau had a lot of experience on Bay Street and some and other finance ministers, some other finance ministers have in the past. And, and that was the reaction. I think, um, I think strategically some commented too that uh, as a as a liberal government, it you to kind of calm down Bay Street, you want to put a Bay Street guy of course because it's going to probably going to be a guy a uh, bay street guy in there um to kind of keep them at bay and to keep them relaxed um and that's the rationale but the other rationale is that um sexism <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry Craig, um yeah definitely oh no no worries uh definitely yeah sexism plays a big part of it uh, i think we saw some of that with dr jill biden uh 
did I say Joe? Uh, Dr. Jill Biden, uh, where people were saying, well, she's not a real doctor because I, I don't know what her doctorate's in, but uh, it's in people who see a doctor's only, you know, a medical doctor and anybody else, that's not a real doctor, but it's, you know, it's still a lot of work. She, and I think we saw that with uh, Dr. Jill Biden. And then we see it with Christia, uh, with Freeland, uh, just because she is a woman, she's holding that post. Because like you said, Don Mazinkowski was a used car dealership. And when you look at the history of ministers of finance, there are just as many lawyers as there are anybody with uh, a background in economics. But my favorite is George Foster, who was the finance minister several times in the late 1800s. And he has a background in uh, ancient literature, which I don't know how that lends to experience. And maybe did, maybe later he had experience with economics but uh yeah that's not a ton of experience in in how to manage government finances but uh i think uh people just they find anything that they can to to latch on to uh and say well that's not enough experience never mind that she speaks whatever four or five languages is a Rhodes scholar written several books uh is extremely intelligent you know well she doesn't have this particular uh background so she can't be the minister of finance mm. And, not, and that, I, not that we want to engage with this criticism too much as having any credibility, but I will respond to it in saying, you know, not only is she, is she a Harvard educated and a Rhodes scholar, um, she has been writing about economics for her entire career as a journalist. Oh, she's just a journalist. She wrote for the Financial Times. She wrote a book about the super rich. Like her work has been about economics and she studied it intimately. Um, so in a sense, you know, it, it, there's just no credibility to <laughs> that argument, right? And I also think in some regards, she's uniquely like best situated for this position because, you know, every, like this idea that you have to be a Bay Street um, businessman it doesn't necessarily translate to the government because the government's not a business. And if you have a, a thorough understanding of how to... Um, enact policies and what kind of policies need to be in place to, you know, best facilitate, then that's probably going to better position you. And in my opinion, that's what she comes into the job with an, a very in-depth and um, excellent understanding of. So, you know, not, not to engage with the criticism, but, you know, to dispel it, I think we, we should highlight that she does act actually have really excellent experience that we should be praising her for you know and we should also highlight the terrible jobs that many businessmen have done in politics mm -hmm. at every fucking level <laughs> all over totally. the world that's <laughs> <laughs> what you find yeah. point on it that's funny um i think also i i just have some also interesting thoughts because i think um you know we talk well, when Justin Trudeau first took office, he talked about his cabinet being 50-50, right? 50% women, 50% men. And I think that what often gets lost in that conversation is the fact that there are still positions that are higher profile um, within the cabinet that are always predominantly held by men. And I think that that's something that we need to really think about and uncover, you know, not just having a 50-50 cabinet, but having women in those um, more powerful posts, things like, um, you know, 
defense minister, things like finance minister, um, I think it's really important. And so when women get into those cabinet positions that are particularly powerful, I think we need to continue to celebrate that. Um, because when you have a 50-50 split, but I'm sorry, you know, you're all of your women are doing like culture and things like that. And all your men are doing defense and uh, finance. Although I think culture is very important. I'm not, you know, trying to you know. I was like, are you sure you want to name a portfolio? No, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really not trying to like shit on any portfolios here. But like, I, I do think, you know, it's important to say that certain posts are known for being more uh, important or ha- are more powerful. And we need to make sure that those, those ports, uh, posts have women in them, at least 50-50. And it's like a lot of things, right? Like sometimes just when, when women just get in- injected to things um it, it like it can still even like it's it gives a cover to the people who are um who are raising the women up it gives them cover that they have like been inclusive that's why yeah. having a female finance minister is um incredibly important mm-hmm. and i have this um <laughs> when uh Trudeau first appointed the gender balanced cabinet in 2015, the Beavertons, uh, which is a satirical newspaper, ran the headline, 50% female cabinet appoints appointments lead to 5,000% increase in guys who suddenly care about the merit in cabinet. <laughs> and I think that that's exactly what we've encountered here with the, the finance minister. Like, to be honest, like, I can't remember a time that we really cared about the minister of finance, you know, in such a way. <laughs> no offense. Um, go, going back to what you're saying with uh, women in prominent uh, portfolios, uh, you definitely can see that in things like the foreign affairs and finance in how many prime ministers come from those portfolios. Uh, like I said, with uh, foreign affairs, you had nine prime ministers. With uh, finance, you have five prime ministers. We've only had 23 prime ministers. So like that is a significant chunk. Uh, you don't have too many that come from, and I, like you said, I don't want to crap on culture or something like that, but uh, you don't have too many that come from the the, the backbench cabinet, uh, the, the, the smaller uh, uh, cabinet posts, uh, because they're not as prominent. They don't get as much uh, screen time on TV or on, uh, on radio or the internet. And so having somebody in a prominent position like Minister of Finance or Foreign Affairs, where they're signing agreements and they're meeting foreign leaders, uh, that's probably why you have so many prime ministers who come from that because they're getting that, that face time. And like you said, if you have uh, women who are not in any, uh, any of those roles, yes, you do have 50% of your cabinet is women, but how many, like you said, are uh, actually making big decisions uh, for the country. Um, So I think that we also need to be cautious um, because oftentimes women don't get their big shot in politics until it's an absolutely dire situation. And of course we've seen that. um, We have many examples of that in, in Canadian history, of course, maybe most famously, we have obviously Kim Campbell who came in um, at the time that the conservatives were, gravely unpopular and we get into that in our episode about Kim Campbell um and of course that was also the situation with Chris uh Kathleen Wynne um and so of course uh Christia Freeland is coming in at a time where um you know 
the financial state of Canada is not great, obviously, because of COVID. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I have a lot of faith in Christia Freeland to, <laughs> to overcome great odds, but I think that it's also going to be important when we talk about the legacy of her time in, in as finance minister, no matter how it goes to take into account that, you know, she's been given a incredibly different, difficult, uh, portfolio. And I'm quite curious to see how it shakes out for her. And there's been lots written about this. And I think it's really interesting. Um, and it's definitely rooted in like ideas about femininity and, and womanhood that women are often uh, put in place to clean up messes. And women are often expected to swoop in and fix things. And, um, and sometimes end up getting blamed for it like mm -hmm. a kim campbell i think like a Theresa may obviously she yes yeah made mistakes but she also probably shoulders maybe more blame than she deserves yeah. um and and in my fear for her which we'll address in the, you know towards the end of the episode is that i don't want that to happen to christia freeland so i'm interested in her relationship with trudeau um we talked about how he he pursued her pretty you know fairly aggressively he he really wanted her um i do think that her work has formed as liv said a lot of the basis for the ideological basis for his government um and and they seem to be thick as thieves <laughs> those two you know she's uh, she's obviously stood by him as is her role um throughout scandal She's, you know, she obviously has remained, seemed to have remained loyal to him. And he seems to be loyal to her from everything that we can see. You know, he praises her a lot. You know, he, um, he certainly gives her credit. He loves all the great work that she's done for him. Um, and Who wouldn't? he never, he doesn't seem, at least from the outside, to be threatened by her, strangely. He always... Um, you know, he always uses her as, you know, his most trusted, his most trusted cabinet minister, um, and it usually pays off. And he often does let her take credit for it and gives credit um, where it is due to her. Um, when he, I thought it was interesting, he asked, uh, he was asked by, by a journalist what her job would be as deputy prime minister um, and, and whether it would resemble those in the past. And he said, I see it being very much a Freelandish role, <laughs> which means nothing. But I think shows that I don't know. He he clearly has a lot a lot of trust in her and a lot of faith in her. Um, and I think mm -hmm. it's interesting. Well, I read quite a few different conversations, and I was curious how people would talk about this. And yeah, I, I heard quite a few different ones. So just to start at my favorite, <laughs> perhaps. Um, is is i guess this these were kind of the the open questions is is trudeau's kind of elevation of and celebration of freeland's new role uh speak to his you know feminist ideology or does it speak more to his own inaction you know and his unwillingness <laughs> to do the hard work as prime minister which i thought was funny but it's also kind of true because there was many opportunities when he appointed her to different um, cabinet positions where he could have taken on that portfolio himself um, in the interim. Um, and he chose to just hand it off, um, you know? And so I think 
you know, no doubt she is doing a lot of the hard work um, within within the liberal party. Like that, that's, I think, undisputed. So <laughs> is this going to be the Justin Ling quote? Is this what you're going to say? No, please say it. I'm going to butcher it because he said it on a podcast like months ago, but he said, Justin Ling, who's a, who's a journalist, said he ran into Prime Minister Trudeau, um, ran into, I'm sure they were at an event, uh, shortly after uh, she was appointed as Deputy Prime Minister. And he said to him, Prime Minister, you look too relaxed. And he said, of course I'm relaxed. Christy Freeland's Deputy Prime Minister. <laughs> like, he was like, almost <laughs> to say, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> Obviously no, not but- the case since COVID, but- yeah, he's been, uh, yeah, he's probably like really unhappy that he has to do work because of COVID. But um, <laughs> no, I just think that like, I don't want to be too controversial in my statement, but I do think that yeah. a lot of what he seems to enjoy about um, his role as prime minister is being um, like a symbolic figurehead. And that is really what he does well in on, on you know, the international stage. And so, you know, for, for me, seeing Krista Freeland as kind of like the brains and the brawn behind the operation makes a lot of sense, um, you know, and because it, for me, it also makes sense that he's so willing to say, oh, she's doing a fantastic job um, because ultimately he's still reaping a lot of glory and admiration from the positive work that she's doing because of course, you know, the liberals are a team at the end of the day, right? And what she does that's, you know, good for the country is good for Trudeau. So I see this as a huge win for Justin Trudeau. The the thing that I'm curious about interrogating is what her motives are. You know, is she kind of in the corner scheming to, not necessarily, maybe scheming is the wrong word, but like, you know, hoping that her work's going to pay off and that she's going to one day end up being prime minister? Or is she just genuinely the minister of everything who's happy to do the hard work because she's team Canada, you know? I think it can be both. Sure, sure. I think it can be both. I think speaking to um, the minister of everything, I saw a bunch of tweets in the past few days since um, the governor general, Julie Payette, resigned in a scandal. Um, Episode about that coming soon yeah not Um, soon but we'll come (laughs) in a few years since then like all these tweets like (laughs) my favorite but there's a lot in this vein i bet you right now christine freeland is explaining to justin trudeau that she can't be governor general and finance minister at the same time (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's so good (laughs) oh that's too funny but i do think if he could have her do the job if you could have her do all the work he would because she has yet she has she really has yet to fail mm-hmm. like she's she's obviously made gap like some gaps here and there but but not very many you know she's she's largely been successful of course there are people who are critical of of um, the usmca or the kuzma or whatever you want to call it the new nafta um, and the deal that we ended up pulling out um of course, if he was super spiteful, it might be hard for him to see her get all this praise as he's embroiled in scandal after scandal. Um, but if he's smart, he knows he needs to rely on someone as talented as her. I guess uh, with uh, with Trudeau, we should look at his father too, and probably the the impact that his father's career had on him. And with his father, he he didn't have somebody of of Freeland's level uh, that he put so much faith into, but 
uh, he also had somebody who he kind of continually promoted uh, throughout his career. And it was, uh, I, don't, I don't really know how to pronounce your last name. I always get it wrong. I'm, I'm learning French, but I think it's Jean Suave. Uh, and she was elected in the 1970s and then she became the Minister of Communications. And then Trudeau made her the first uh, female Speaker of the House. And then when she was done that, he made her the first Governor General. So kind of a similar thing where there was this one person that continually just kept rising up until essentially the top post in the land with, uh, with Governor General. Uh, Freeland is probably a ways away from that. I think she have to leave you know, the House of Commons first. But uh, I don't know how much of an impact that has on Trudeau when he looks at his father's career and his father's promotion of, of women within, within uh, the House of Commons and cabinet, or just the fact that you know, they each have this one woman that they keep pushing up through the through uh, the House of Commons into various different roles. I wonder, Craig, if you know the answer to this. When we did our Margaret Margaret Trudeau rep episode, um, you know, our take on on him, you know, through the lens of her eyes is that he's, you know, he was very solitary, very cerebral in his own head, running his own thing. He didn't really involve her in much. Um, and I'm wondering if you know, like, was he like that as prime minister? Did he, as Trudeau relies on Christia, did he rely on um other cabinet ministers with like near full confidence the way that Trudeau seems to with Christia like did he have that kind of relationship to the rest of his cabinet I think uh with some uh probably especially Jean Chrétien uh mm -hmm. because he played so many different roles minister of finance minister of Indian affairs deputy prime minister uh so I think uh Jean Chrétien probably filled that Freeland role for the for the elder Trudeau for sure and I think also and, and John Turner as well of course. Um, and I think also just like not to be mean, but I do think it bears noting that um, Pierre Trudeau was a very accomplished um, intellect in his own right in a way that uh, Justin just isn't, um, you know, and I and I do think I know it's a little mean, but I do think that like Christia fills in a lot of that um, the the brains of the operate, you know, she's she's incredibly bright and i think that she all like she's certainly at the level that pierre trudeau was intellectually um maybe even greater who knows but um uh i i think that i i know it's a mean thing to say but i do think it bears noting are we i think we're circling it should we go right to the last question yes let's do it i'm, I'm excited um is christy freeland going to be a prime minister one day Yes. Yes. Um, I think so. This is, this is interesting, which I didn't know is that there is a little bit of history. I know we were just talking about this, but of the great, it's called the great liberal switcheroo um, where two people have sort of risen together. Um, and you have this, ex this example federally with uh, John Kirchen and Paul Martin, where one of one of the people's waiting in the wings. So I think that we could see that again with, with Trudeau. It does seem like a natural um, option when he's ready to step down. I mean, of course he's quite young. So I, I think imagining him stepping down for Freeland to take over is kind of funny because you, you know, he seems like he has like a whole life if he wants to stay in politics ahead of him. Um, so, you know, who knows when he's going to step down, but eventually, you know, his time, his time will probably come and he'll want to move on to, to different things. So 
I think it seems natural and I think it's quite good politics within the Liberal Party to have a, a number two waiting in the wings because what you don't want to happen, I think, is what happened with the Conservative Party recently where um, in the new leadership run, there was no obvious uh person to take over there was no obvious like second person and I think it's quite good politics within a party to 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 have people who seem obvious who are being fostered and brought up who've held you know prestigious cabinet roles who are really ready to take over I think it's good for the stability of the party and also the marketability of the party to have familiar faces who come on the ticket with if she could become prime minister I definitely think she has the you know, the credentials, the experience. Uh, my main worry would that she would be, uh, you know, Trudeau leaves for whatever reason, say there's a scandal, say the government's on the decline, like you had with uh, Jean Chrétien, and then Paul Martin comes in, but he only serves for two years, or uh, Pierre Trudeau, you know, he knows his time's coming to an end, so he resigns, and John Turner takes over, and he only serves for three months. Uh, so my worry would be that Trudeau would say, okay, well, you're in charge now, and then we go to an election and the conservatives win because if you look at Canadian history, we have these blocks where it's like a bunch of liberal time, then conservative, then liberal. Uh, so I, I don't want her to serve for only say six months or a year because then we fall back into that thing with Kim Campbell where people say, well, we've had female prime ministers, but they only serve for a very short time through no fault of their own uh, in the case of Kim Campbell, the sinking, sinking seven or the crashing 747. So I would hope that uh, the best case would actually be for Trudeau to say, decide I'm not going to run again, and then the Conservatives to come into power for a little while, and then Freeland to come in and be elected, because then we could probably ensure she would be in place for, you know, 10, 12 years, because she's not uh, riding the coattails of Trudeau, she's not uh, at the very end of a, a, a liberal cycle before we get to a Conservative cycle like we saw with both Turner and uh, Paul Martin. But I definitely think that she could be prime minister just based on, if you look at the, the portfolio she's had and the number of prime ministers who have had those, her experience, she's very prominent. Uh, I think most Canadians can't name many ministers of finance or minister of foreign affairs, but they definitely know who Freeland is. And that definitely will help her uh, going forward. I think it's unfortunate, but probably, probably definitely the case that her fate is, is really tied to what happens with the rest of Trudeau's career. Um, you know, if he, I think she's, I, it's hard to say, and I, I investigated this a little bit because I'm interest, interested, like how, how affected is she by his scandals? And I don't have a good answer to that. Um, I don't know if people are kind of lumping them together because they're so closely associated or they like does it I don't know how much that has brought her down I mean to be honest how much has that really brought him down lately he's 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 still fairly popular I mean he hasn't uh he certainly survived these these issues but if we know anything about him I mean I'm not confident saying there's not going to be another scandal before he's <laughs> out right like it's <laughs> It's, it's hard to tell how much she's been stained by his scandals. And I think what happens next will with, with, hit, with him and, and his reputation will probably have an effect on her, obviously. Um, I do think you're right. I, I do think that it, it might be a mistake to take over for him if he has to resign in disgrace. That might 
kind of seal her fate like it did with Kim Campbell. Um, and then to have her try and swoop in and clean up the mess. I, I don't want that journey for her. I, I hope that's not what happens. We don't, we want to be careful and not pretend that she probably didn't have lots of opportunities and supportive parents and lots of reasons and privilege why she has ascended the way she does. She has. However, I think the fact that she has, she at least appears on paper to have achieved everything she's achieved largely by merit, which is kind of a response to, um, like her meritorious rise would probably be a response to Trudeau's nepotistic rise, we could say, right? Like she's kind of a response to that. Um, That that, that will certainly be good for her. Of course, we have to trouble the other privileges that she has that might have allowed her to rise that way. But, you know, she's, she started where she did and, and, and look where she is now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a story that, that Canadians will like. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good Canadian story. Um, but, the, you know, everyone loves a Canadian who started on a farm. It's, it's, it's hard to beat that origin story. Uh, I actually am, I'm a huge fan. I expected some more um, criticism, but uh, I came away with uh, pretty much respecting her and thinking her resume was incredibly impressive. And it's also, um, you know, calling into question what I'm doing with my life and um, (laughs) wondering where I'm gonna be at 29, you know, like (sighs) big shoes to fill. (laughs) Just kidding. I was saying that I, I had a hard time like finding proper criticism of her that wasn't tied to criticism of the liberals. Like you're hard pressed to find it. Yeah. Oh, and I know, I know we're not really supposed to comment on, you know, how women dress in politics, but can I just say as a final thought, I'm, I'm really into the red dresses. I, I, I love that look for her and I, and I, and I love it. And her use of the scarf recently also very into I think she's doing great. And I, and I know we talked about this uh, a little bit before, but I do think it's really great when female politicians embrace their own femininity and they don't just wear power business suits and they embrace color because I think, you know, shining uh, and calling attention to the fact that you are a woman in politics is really important. Um, So, you know, not to uh, objectify her, but I, I do love the red dresses and what the red dress represents for women. I don't think you are. I think, um, I think, I think what maybe what you're getting at, I agree with is that of course, every, every woman should be able to express her femininity, however they want, whether that's a pantsuit or, or a red sheath dress. Um, but I don't think that we see many politicians, many female politicians who present, um, quite femme. And I think that that is refreshing. Um, I'm a, yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of hers. I think that she would be a very good uh, prime minister. She's so far done a very good job um, in the various roles she's had. It's no easy task to go up against a dumpster fire like Donald Trump in terms of renegotiating NAFTA, which didn't need to be renegotiated, but she did anyways. And I think she did a good job for Canada with that. And with all the experience she has, the connections she has, uh, I kind of see her if, if uh, everything kind of aligns right and, you know, she isn't given a sinking ship and becomes a prime minister, you know, she could be somebody who has the kind of power uh, like the uh, German chancellor, uh, uh, Angela, Angela Merkel. Merkel. 
Yeah. Uh, somebody like that, who's very accomplished, very smart, and does raise the profile of their country quite a bit. And I think we're probably a ways away from that. Trudeau's still quite young. Uh, he may try to be prime minister for a while. Uh, she might leave politics and maybe come back uh, to it down the road after we've gone through another stretch of conservatives. But I think uh, if she doesn't become prime minister, it would probably be like a, a wasted opportunity for Canada. Uh, yeah. Just because looking, looking back at the prime ministers we've had, she definitely has a huge amount of experience even before getting into politics. Usually you gain those, that experience in politics, but she's gained that uh, before she ever got to it and then just added to it afterwards. Craig, thank you so much for being with us today. It was so great to have a more historical perspective um, to combat you know, all of Katie and I's opinions. Plug yourself everywhere. <laughs> Um, okay, well, I have uh, Canadian History X, and that's E-H-X uh, on all podcast platforms. I have my new ones, Pucks and Cups, and uh, from John to Justin, where I look at every prime minister in our history. Uh, Canadian History X releases three episodes a week, two are interview episodes with historians and uh, well-known Canadians, and then I do kind of a longer uh, episode on Saturdays. Uh, half of those look at Indigenous history. And if you want to find me, I'm everywhere. I've got just look for Canadian History X on Facebook, uh, Craig Baird on Twitter, that's uh, B-A-I-R-D. And on Instagram, I'm Bairdo37. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions, you want to get in touch with me, just email Craig at CanadaEHX.com. And I have to say as oh, well- Oh, my website too. <laughs> oh, your website's really good. I was actually just on it this morning. Um, I have to say as well, the thing that no one tells you about starting a podcast is that you're going to make podcast friends, you know? And I think that yes. that's been, that's been so fun. It's been so great to get to know you. Cause obviously we were on your podcast, um, two weeks ago, or oh, it came out this week. It came out on, um, January 20th. On so, Wednesday. um, yeah. on Wednesday. So if, if, uh, if our listeners haven't heard our interview with you, they should head over to um, Canadian History X to listen to it. Because um, it's been so fun to, to record with you for a couple of weeks now. So um, we'll have to do something mm -hmm. again soon. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. I really, really quite enjoyed it. A uh, bit different for me. Usually I'm just reading a, a script and talking to the wall or my dog. So this is this is nice to actually talk to other humans about history. <laughs> At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.